Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. Mark Hollingsworth is an investigative journalist and an author of 10 books, including London Grad, the inside story of the oligarchs. He's a regular contributor to The Times, The Financial Times, The Observer, The Sunday Times and The Guardian. Indeed, any paper that matters. His new book is A Journalistic Window to Russian's Political Warfare Strategies, and it delves deeply into its long history of espionage, disinformation and zapachkat. We'll get into exactly what that means a little bit later. From old school Soviet era techniques to post-KGB operations facilitated by the FSB and the GUR, Agents of Influence, How the KGB Subverted Western Democracies is an insightful and well-researched piece, providing readers a clear picture picture of Putin's ongoing threat to the West. Mark Hollingsworth, welcome to Monocle Reads. Ah, uh, thank you. This book could not be more perfectly timed mm. when the world is looking at Putin, wondering what he's doing, but also when we're seeing this massive leak of secrets from the US and obviously everybody's spying on everybody else. Uh, we blame Russia for having this huge kind of spy network and for a, a lot of things that it's done wrong, but Mm. it's become increasingly clear they're not alone. Uh, The Russians are not alone in the sense of spying on people. Obviously, the Americans, the British, the Western democracies have intelligence agencies and they spy on on each other and on Russia and all the rest of it. But I think the track record of, of Russian intelligence operations is a lot more brutal and ruthless and indiscriminate than the Western spy agencies. And I think that's mainly because in the West there's a certain amount of accountability, particularly in the United States, through the Congressional Committee, oversights, uh, legal accountability, which was set up in the 1970s and to a lesser extent in the UK. So our intelligence agencies are just more restrained. But I think, to be candid, uh, culturally, If you look at the history of Russia, they've never had a democracy. It's always been an authoritarian dictatorship. And so the role of the KGB and in previous Russian intelligence agencies is that they've always been almost like a a private army for the ruler of Russia at that time. And so they were given a license to do virtually anything they wanted. Uh, Which they continue to do. Now, you start this book with the Russian former prosecutor general and exactly what happened to him. Tell us that story. Well, before Putin became president of Russia, he was head of the Russian intelligence service, the FSB. And at the time, this is the late 1990s, uh, Yeltsin was still president and there were corruption investigations going on into to the oligarch, well, not just the oligarchs, but state corruption as well, in terms of members of Yeltsin's inner circle and family taking bribes for contracts with, with the Russian government. And so the prosecutor general at the time was a man called Skiratov, Skiratov, and he was leading this investigation, and uh, he was basically honey-trapped in the sense that we're not sure completely who actually hired these women, but they basically seduced him and honey-trapped him, and then they filmed the honey-trap in a Russian hotel room in Moscow. But the point of it is that this video was then leaked to Russian TV, who broadcast the video late at night as a way of smearing and uh, discrediting the prosecutor general who was investigating corruption. And the significance of it is not just to show how ruthless the the Russians are in terms of how they demonize and go after political enemies. But the importance of it is that this was late 1999 and 
the official who was leading the investigation into this prosecutor general was Putin. And so what happened was that uh, the videos of the prosecutor general with these prostitutes were leaked to the media, to the TV, and there was an investigation into him and he was under, put under huge pressure. At first, he, he refused to resign. Eventually, he had to resign. His career was over. And what was significant about it is that one of his political supporters of, of Skuratov was a political rival of Putin for the presidency. So that the consequence of this incident, of this intelligence dirty trick against the prosecutor general, was that Putin benefited politically because one of his rivals was basically taken out of the picture. And within, I think, a few months, Putin became president of Russia. This brings us on to this word, zapachkat. I believe it means to besmirch, and that's exactly what had happened to Skirtov. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And so it's the use of compromising information. The Russians call it compromat. And it's basically what they do is they investigate, they put under surveillance, they try and honey trap, they entrap, they try and um, ensnare their political opponents, anyone who is against them in any way usually Western intelligence officers, particularly Western diplomats, political rivals. And they do it in a very strategic way. And then they compile all the photographs, the videos, the documents, the evidence. Sometimes they fabricate it. And then they use it and they, ke- and they keep it. And then they wait until the right moment to strike. And they did this against, during the Cold War, they did this against conservative MPs, politicians, diplomats, foreign correspondents, and so it's a it's not just a sort of ad hoc operation it's it, it's they compile this material and then they wait and then they use it and they will then leak it anonymously or they will use it in any way to damage that individual Donald Trump <laughs> Well with Donald Trump <laughs> I think the evidence is that it's not clear I mean what we do know is that since the beginning of the cold war probably almost before the cold war Every Western diplomat, politician, journalist, whatever, if you stay in in a luxury or upmarket hotel in Moscow, almost every hotel room is going to be bugged. So I think with Donald Trump, I think the, the, the jury's out. I'm not convinced. I'm not sure that, sure, he was under surveillance. I know from my own sources that in the 80s when he became prominent and in, in the 90s under the FSB, uh, he was looked at. But but my information is that the Russian security service in the 80s and 90s thought he was just a joke, really. They thought he was, you know, he'd been bankrupt several times. He wasn't regarded as a serious person or any sort of political threat to Soviet Union. So I'm not convinced that they necessarily had compromise on Trump. And I think probably if if the famous video of him in the hotel room with the prostitute. If it existed, it would have come out or been sold by now. Yeah, yeah. Now, Putin was a KGB officer from 75 to 91. Obviously, he's very aware of the power of the security services and has made use of that the whole way through his career. Yes, I mean, Putin was a a KGB officer uh, initially based in St. Petersburg, harassing and and, and spying on, on dissidents. And then he moved to Dresden in East Germany in the late 1980s. And What's significant about that period is that Putin was very aware of the power and impact of intelligence operations, disinformation, forgery of documents, fake news, recruiting agents. And he once said 
that he was amazed at how the actions of one spy could impact on hundreds of thousands of people. And in some ways, the, the impact of intelligence operations could have a, a profound political impact on the West or on, on any situation, even more so than orthodox political activity. And so he, when he became president of Russia in the late 1999, he was very conscious, obviously, partly because of his background, of the power and impact of intelligence operations, whether it's hacking, surveillance, honey trapping, disinformation. And so that has permeated and, and has been a sort of underlying theme of his whole presidency, really. Mm. And now we're seeing it manifest itself during the Ukraine war. I mean, you also write the phrase Moscow is silent, haunted Putin for decades after the Cold War. Political elites could be supplanted. Regimes could be overthrown. The security of the state could be dismantled. And that's clearly something he's taken to heart. Yes. I mean, I think ever since the Cold War ended and Putin was right there on the front line when German, you know, in East, he was based in East Germany and and when the Cold War literally ended. I mean, he was there in the KGB office and they were shredding documents and they were panicking and there were pe the protesters outside their office almost. And he could see what was happening and it was humiliating and embarrassing and debilitating. And he was on the phone to Moscow and they said, well, there's nothing you can do. Just burn, shred documents. So I think that experience has, has always stayed with him. And I think it's always been in his mind and in the first few years of his presidency, he was relatively conciliatory. There was no evidence of him starting a new Cold War. And then it changed around about 2007, 2008, when he made this speech in Munich, uh, basically saying that America is 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 the main enemy of, of the world and, and, and should not have a monopoly on global influence and power. And from that moment on, and then we had the invasion of you know, Crimea and the Donbass area in 2014, and that period from about 2010 onwards, secretly the FSB, the Russian Security Service, were infiltrating Ukraine and there was building out, building out. And Russians are quite patient people and the way they operate. That's why, partly why they're so good at chess. And, they're, you know, they're very strategic and they don't mind waiting. And, and, and I think this invasion of Ukraine, he's been planning it for, for some time. Uh, the irony is that obviously militarily it's been... A, pretty much a disaster so but i think that's partly partly due to putin being a sort of micromanager and not listening to his generals but that's a different that's a different story which i've written about mm, mm. and you've written about oligarchs too i mean there's so much of interest in your back catalogue <laughs> really fascinating uh, statistic here a research report in 2006 found that 78 percent of the russian elite had ties to the security services Yes. So when Putin became president, I mean, he pretty much brought back the KGB into the Kremlin because under the Yeltsin, in the Yeltsin years during the 1990s, the KGB had been disbanded and had far less influence. Uh, I mean, they still existed. They were reconstituted and called the FSB and in, in international affairs, the GRU. And they still operated. They still put uh, the CIA and MI6 officers based in Moscow, they put them under surveillance and there was still a lot of, obviously, they were still active. But in terms of having real power under the Yeltsin regime in the 1990s, they had far less. And so when Putin became president, he brought back uh, all his old KGB cronies, uh, most important, a man called Patrushev, who is uh, the national security 
Cal was the most senior national security officer, official, and he was ex-KGB. And, and you, you can just you can document all of his main advisors and people who are head, head of the very lucrative state-owned companies, oil and gas companies. But majority of them have KGB background. So it's almost like he's, he's built a kind of security state within the state, and that's their mentality. And so... They've been brought back, and they really they rule Russia. Mm. And as you as you say, there's no such thing as a former KGB man. Yes, I mean I think they're. I think it's more to do with their mentality as much as anything else. I mean I, it's it's hard to document, but the ruthlessness of the relationship between politics and and intelligence was probably manifest itself mainly. Again, back in late 1999, when Putin was prime minister, not yet president. And there were these bombings of apartment buildings in in three cities in Russia. And 300 Russian people died. These were explosions in these apartment blocks in three Russian cities. And at the time, Putin blamed it on Chechen terrorists and insurgents or criminals. And then since then, it's been investigated. And I think there's credible evidence to show that actually the people who blew up those apartment buildings and killed 300 innocent Russian people were the FSB. And they did it to enable Putin, who was then prime minister, but not yet president, to appear tough and uh, strong. And he then launched the Second Chechen War. But the whole thing about Russia is that the Russian people admire and respect strength and security and toughness. And they regard some some Russian people, certainly I would say majority of Russian people think that, you know, human rights and uh, freedom of association is a kind of uh, luxury, you know, and some even think it's a sort of form of weakness. The elections is a form of weakness. So they respect authority. So Putin was able to use that horrific incident to become president. And he used the FSB as his kind of private army to do that. So that shows you the power of the Russian intelligence apparatus and mm. what they're capable of. Tell us about the whole disinformation and fake news operation. The main, I would say, uh, vehicle for Russian uh, intelligence operations abroad was the use of disinformation and forgery of documents of fake news. And basically, you could trace this way back to 1921 when Lenin was in power. Lenin actually said that telling the truth was a bourgeois concept, and and Stalin believed the same. In that uh, he once said, uh, he once quoted a proverb which basically was was said that if you chop wood, splinters will fly. And so you can catalogue this throughout the history of Russia. But basically, they believe that if you spread disinformation and leak fake news and, and, and fabricate documents and spread this throughout the West, it will destabilise the West, it will create tension, chaos, undermine the democracies, it will just create problems for Western democracies, because it just creates a sort of atmosphere and permeates, you know, distrust. I mean, the, the most famous example is in the 1980s, when the KGB launched this operation to say that the US State Department and the CIA deliberately manufactured AIDS as a virus, purely to that it would only affect black people and gay people. And this was a KGB fabrication. And the way they did it, and the way they always did it, 
was that they would basically fabricate something, uh, for example, that the US national security advisor was anti-Jewish in America. So that's very damaging politically in America. We literally just fake it and they would fabricate a document and a leaflet and then distribute that leaflet saying that uh, his name was Brzezinski. This is a real case. He was national security advisor to the president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, in the late 70s. And then they would distribute that in the Jewish community. And that's one of the things they did. But their main their main operation was to fabricate a, a story and then they would leak it or give it to a newspaper, usually in a in a country, you know, uh, a country like Ghana or in the or the or in Asia, a country that was not on the front line of Cold War politics, but had not communist sympathies, but a sort of country where the press was was not exactly very scrupulous about checking sources. So a story would be published in, for example, in somewhere like Sri Lanka about the CIA or about whatever they, they, they fabricated. And it would be published there and they would leave it there and it would be published in that obscure newspaper. And then they'd wait about six months and then they would ring a Western uh, journalist in London or New York and say, oh, have you heard about this story about the CIA plotting to overthrow, you know, whatever it was, you know, a country in, in Asia? And uh, the journalist was, well, well, that's interesting. And then they would say, well, it's actually already been published, but in an obscure newspaper. So there's some credibility because mm. it's out mm. there. And so the, that would then take a life of its own. And some journalists would then publish that story. And so that was an example of the disinformation that they used to create, as I say, this sort of tension and to try and destabilize and smear the West. And so that's an example of how they operated. And of course, that's getting more and more sophisticated with uh, fake videos and, and so on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the only difference really between what the KGB did during the Cold War and now is the technology. So it's the same operational mindset. It's just they now they have this incredible technology at hand using fake social media accounts and, and all the, the bots and all the and all the technological vehicles that they have. And so they, they unleashed it, obviously, during the 2016 US presidential election. But they've obviously used it during the Ukraine war and, and anywhere else. If they want to smear or discredit a political opponent, then they will just unleash through through social media accounts, through online publications, through the whole technological uh, war operations at their disposal. And so in some ways it's more serious now than it used to be because it reaches a far larger number of people. And I think people are also a bit more vulnerable now so, mm. because they're so people are now so well, comfortable is the wrong word, but they're so embedded in the online culture. And a lot of people think, well, if it's on the internet, it must be true. If it's online, it must be true. And they don't check. And this is the problem. There's so many, you know, blogs and, you know, online publications and websites and social media accounts. And people are just vulnerable to this because they don't either they don't check or their mindset is that, if it's online, it must be true, and that's incredibly dangerous. I mean, you write about the fragility of Western democracy and how easily it can be destabilised. How responsible, then, do you think Russia was for Brexit? Well, I looked at this for my book in terms of whether Russia engineered or helped to campaign for Brexit. It was certainly politically in their interests. I think they obviously, there's no secret that Russia 
was quite happy for Brexit to happen because it it disrupted the European alliance between the UK and, and Europe. It was disruptive. It, it caused problems in terms of Britain's trade relations, political relations, diplomatic relations. So it's part of the KGB playbook of disrupting the West. So <laughs> I think there's some circumstantial evidence for it. I haven't seen any real clear evidence for it. I mean, I think in future years, that evidence will emerge. But they you know they're very sophisticated in the way they used it. I mean, if you read the, um, the Mueller report into the um, Russian intelligence operations during the 2016 American presidential election, it's a very detailed account of how they used social media accounts to flood an American electorate with false news and, and crazy conspiracy theories. And the, the point about the way the Russians operate is that they will on an industrial scale almost during the Cold War and now flood there were just like a tsunami of fabrication and, and, and disinformation and fake news and they don't mind even if like 80% it's hard to put a percentage on it they'd actually don't mind if, if 70-80% will just dismiss it as a hoax ridiculous nonsense conspiracy because even if you have 10% of the population or of the electorate believing it that could swing an election mm. And I think that's what I think that's why people were so concerned about what happened in 2016 was that, you know, that it could have influenced, you know, because the election was actually quite close in certain states. Sadly, we're running out of time, but I just wonder what your prognosis for the future is. I mean, are we in a new Cold War and what what role will the FSB play in that? Well, we're definitely in a new Cold War. And Putin uh, is using all the old Cold War methods, disinformation, fake news, forgery of dog, I mean, just spreading all kinds of lies. And I'm sure behind the scenes, trying to get compromise on people and recruiting agents, certainly in Ukraine, there's been a lot of intelligence penetration in Ukraine, trying to recruit people and get them to defect and all kinds of operations. So, and for Putin and the Russians, the use of intelligence influence operations in this war is as important as the military operation because if you've got if you can spread this information it can help you ensure that the russian people are more supportive of the war it can improve the morale of your own troops and it can destabilize your the enemy uh, as well so the whole information war is as important as uh, as as the actual military campaign and it's no coincidence that one of the KGB Russian intelligence favorite authors was Sun Tzu, who's the Chinese military historian, who said all warfare is deception. So that's their whole approach. Mm. Mark, I can't recommend this book highly enough for anybody who really wants to understand what's going on now and how it's been influenced by the history of the security services in Russia. Just fascinating book. It's called Agents of Influence, How the KGB Subverted Western Democracies. It's by Mark Hollingsworth and it's published by One World. It's out now. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Andre Nikolai Paminchuin. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>